Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Lydia is filling in for Jordan Rubin, who is still on paternity leave. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned its landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. The 513 court upheld Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and went on to say that there's no longer a right to an abortion secured by the Constitution. So, um, so Kimberly, the court kind of largely did what we expected here. Uh, that's right. Uh, and so listeners will recall that back in May, the draft opinion by Justice Alito had been leaked. And so we all pretty much sort of had a hunch how this case was going to go, um, unless, you know, Chief Justice Roberts was able to pull off some Hail Mary and get the court to decide something more narrow. Uh, we can talk about uh, where he landed, but that did not happen, did it? No, it did not. Um, I think abortion rights advocates were really hoping that this was just an early draft because, like you said, it was it came out in May. It was dated February 10th. Um, and so they thought and expected a lot of things would change. I think we were, too. You know, right. we were comparing the the leak to the final. Um, and largely, it's remained unchanged um, and has gotten, you know, and that's pretty surprising because, you know, the draft got a lot of criticism, um, not only for its holding, but also its reasoning behind it. So, you know, I think a lot of people thought that we'd see significant changes and we just didn't. Um, the biggest changes that we saw, though, were um, that there was a whole section added uh, just on Chief Justice John Roberts' um, solo concurrence. Um, it also talked a lot about the joint dissent uh, filed by the court's liberal wing. And then it added some language that uh, bolstered fetal personhood rights. But uh, we'll get to more on that later. Yeah. You know, one thing I think that's really interesting about the fact that so little changed is that there was like kind of an uproar, not kind of an uproar. There was an uproar after the draft opinion leaked. And, you know, we saw massive protests across the country, justices' homes. There's somebody tried to murder Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and that didn't have any effect, seemingly, on, you know, the language and the reasoning of the ruling. No, it really didn't. I was kind of expecting that to be a part of this, um, that they might give some nod to that, because in the draft opinion, um, you know, and in the final uh, ruling, Alito said kind of that we don't um, think about, you know, what's going on in the outside world when we are just ruling on the rule of law. Um, And that's something that the dissent really criticized, um, you know, saying that, you know, weakening sorry decisis here and overturning its past decisions um, really uh, can impact the public's respect for the court. Right. So let's talk about stare decisis because that's a big part of uh, this majority opinion. Basically, you know, again, not changing almost at all from the leaked opinion. Justice Alito points to these five things that he says um, means that Roe is not entitled to any stare decisis. And, you know, I think a couple of things to pick out here are he talks a lot about the nature of the ruling and the quality of its reasoning. And he really uh, goes after the you know majorities in, or pluralities in Roe and Casey. Uh, he says that it was egregiously wrong when it was decided, that it was on a collision course with the Constitution, and it says it was always on weak footing. Um, noting that, you know, kind of the reasoning in changed from Roe to Casey over a 20 year course. So uh, no star decisis for you. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, you mentioned the digs that this decision really took at Roe and Casey, um, and that the main argument here um, was that the Constitution doesn't explicitly mention um, abortion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Alito said that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Uh, and he made that point several um, in several instances throughout Um And actually, you know, that was a a large focus on this, the history, right? Um, And that's something that historians have really pushed back on. You know, they've said, like, up until the middle of the 19th century, you know, states, you know, put no restrictions on the procedure. Yeah. And this this language about uh, fundamental rights having to be, you know, deeply rooted in the nation's history had a lot of people worried about, you know, other rights that the court has recognized under the guise of privacy. You know, we think of things like, you know, the ability to use contraceptives, um, marriage, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, um, and then some really important cases um, about LGBT rights. And I didn't see anything in the final opinion that really seemed to bolster uh, Alito's reassurance that those rights were not going to be affected. I think it was pretty much the same language that really hadn't satisfied um, people that the you know, these rights were, in fact, safe. And I thought it was really interesting, though, that we got a separate concurrence from Justice Thomas, uh, writing only for himself, in which he explicitly called on the court to overturn those precedents, saying, like, saying we should overturn and reconsider Obergefell. And I I think, you know, one major significant change um, that I kind of mentioned earlier was that there was this added language about uh, fetal personhood rights um, that really seems to leave the door open for conservatives to pass laws um, that give fetuses, you know, personhood rights, meaning the same protections as a living person. And and by protections, I mean the same basic protections like the right to life. Uh, Alito said nothing in the Constitution or the nation's uh, legal traditions authorizes the court to adopt the theory that that the Constitution requires states to regard a fetus as lacking basic human rights. And so by saying that there's nothing in the Constitution that, you know, prohibits it, like that's saying that it's open season and states are free to pass these sort of laws. Um, And those can have major impacts on a a number of things, um, including that would completely, uh, especially if the federal government passed a law that would make abortion illegal um, nationwide. But it would also have or could have impacts on other things like um, family planning, you know, people who are going through fertility treatments. Um, Some of the the main um, procedures that are used in fertility treatments um, could actually be implicated here. And, you know, women could face, you know, criminal penalties for saying, or if they decide that they don't want to use all the fertilized embryos per se that that have been, you know, I guess, formed in this process of fertility treatments. Yeah, I think this this will certainly um, provide a basis for people to kind of take the wording of Justice Alito's uh, majority opinion and kind of weaponize it into, you know, the future fights over, you know, access to not just abortion, but as you said, you know, uh, reproductive health care. So, uh, you know, one thing we didn't know after this uh, leaked opinion was where uh, the chief justice stood in all of this, um, because he was notably not on uh, listed as one of the votes on that draft. And so, you know, what did we learn today, Kimberly? Because didn't he filed his own uh, opinion in this case? Right. Again, um, this opinion was also uh, just 
solely for himself and no other justices joined. And he did a very Roberts thing that Chief Justice Roberts likes to do, which is kind of take these little baby steps um, and sort of a sort of a middle ground. Um, he wanted to uphold the Mississippi 15 week abortion ban, but not outright overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. It's not clear to me, you know, what effect that would really have, though. I mean, it seems like eventually states would try to kind of push this issue back further and further until, you know, we get to a point where you're basically banning abortion. I think one thing that we learned is that, you know, the chief justice used to be successful at sort of grabbing this middle ground um, back when the court was more was 5-4 and you had a real swing justice on the court within Anthony Kennedy. But now with this 6-3 conservative majority, I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of appetite uh, to kind of take that approach that uh, Chief Justice Roberts wants. This isn't to say that he doesn't think that there's a constitutional right to abortion or that he, you know, supports a constitutional right to abortion. It just means that he doesn't want to kind of completely wipe it off the books as quickly as some of the other justices on the bench are willing to do. Um, And that feeds in a lot with, you know, what the dissent in this case um, highlighted, which is the public's perception of the court. And when you overturn past precedents, um, especially on hotly contested issues like this, that that weakens um, the the public's respect for the court um, and changes how they view uh, this institution. Right. That was some of the harshest language that I saw from the dissent, which was actually a joint dissent by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. It's something that we've seen them do once before this term um, was not have a dissent, you know, signed by just one justice, but speaking all for them. And, you know, I, I, I thought that that was kind of um, some of the more striking parts of the dissent was talking about the legacy. At one point, the dissent quotes Justice Breyer saying, you know, it isn't often that the law has been changed by so few so quickly. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's definitely where we are now. Um, just in the last week, we've seen some major changes, not just in abortion, but with guns and with religion. So that's right. You know, Breyer said, you know, weakening stare decisis and hotly contested cases calls into question the court's commitment to legal principles. Um, and so that would seem to suggest that they're open to doing this in several other areas. Right. Uh, I think the last thing that we should talk about with the dissent is um, its discussion of the effects on women, because um, obviously this will be largely felt by women um, in the U.S. And so the dissent notes that many states have acted very swiftly in the last few years uh, to try and push back um, you know, when they can ban abortion. And the dissent kind of assumes that this is going to happen. But, you know, very shortly after uh, the Dobbs opinion dropped today, we saw Missouri, uh, the Missouri AG actually certify that Roe versus Wade had been overturned and that set into effect a trigger law um, that bans abortion very early there and doesn't make a um, an exception for rape or incest. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think the dissent tried to really say how stark this was going to be for women across the country. Absolutely. There are uh, several states that have those sort of trigger laws um, that can take effect, um, or they have laws that are already kind of on the books um, and ready to go uh, that is going to limit 
you know, the ability for people, pregnant people to get an abortion in their state. And it's going to impact even states where it is lawful because the wait times for those procedures are going to increase exponentially. Yeah, we saw that out of um, after SB8 out of Texas, where Oklahoma saw a real increase um, in its abortion uh, demand. And so, yeah, you're right to say that that this seems like it'll have an effect. And then and then that's, you know, assuming that we don't get into that fetal personhood and the national ban on abortion, right? Right. We'll see what the court does here. They've seen certainly have left the door open for um, states to states and the federal government to pass laws on uh, that give, you know, fetuses uh, basic human rights. And, you know, the court seems to suggest here that they'd be willing to uphold those. So a really big ruling today in Dobbs, but uh, certainly seems like it's not going to be the end of the abortion fight. Definitely not. If the court wanted to get rid of this uh, issue, they certainly didn't do it by issuing this opinion. Right. So uh, we still have more opinions at the Supreme Court. We have seven by my count. Is that right? Oh, boy. Yeah. Seven to go still. And the court is issuing opinions on Monday. Um, What else do we have left? We have, oh, we have that big sentencing case. We have pill mills. Yeah, there's a couple uh, big good criminal cases. Uh, watch yeah. out for, for tweets from me on those. So next week is uh, not going to be as earth shattering, I suspect, as this week was. But uh, we still do have that EPA case um, that could really inhibit the executive's ability to uh, deal with climate change and could make a big rapid change in administrative law. So, hey, there's still stuff to do. Lots still to come. So our listeners should be sure not to tune out just yet. Be sure to follow along with the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species. It's a lot. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join us on the Parts Per Billion podcast every other Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Law's Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.